The Magic Book Club podcast. Hello and welcome to the fourth edition of the Magic Book Club podcast. I'm Richard Allenson and the real reason you're hearing me this week instead of Tom Price is because you're about to hear me speak with Levison Wood. Now this guy, well he quite frankly does things I wish I had. Um, his new book, Arabia, is about his travels across that vast land. Um, that land is rarely referred to as Arabia these days, but anyway, we'll, we'll talk about that later. We had a brilliant conversation about his adventures. Hope you enjoy it. Levison Wood has walked a lot. Um, he's walked the Nile, the Himalayas, the Americas, and now Arabia, a journey through the heart of the Middle East. Did you walk this one? This wasn't a walk. Um, this was more of a... By any means. Um, so, so going around sort of 5,000 miles around the Arabian Peninsula, that was the plan. Um, and what I'd figured from the last journeys was that whilst the, the physical challenge was an important part of it, actually the real allure of these journeys was meeting interesting people. So I thought, why not uh, immerse myself in the local culture, travel as the locals do, and that meant everything from the back of a camel to the, the back of a battle tank. So especially on this one, travelling through places like Iraq and Syria... And Yemen. So, yeah, tricky one to get around. Because you qualify the, the quotation, you say the Middle East is steeped in history, which um, for quite a long time, especially now, translates into um, mired in conflict. Mm. Yeah. And blooming dangerous. Why do, I, why do I want to go there? So you knew all this already. Of course, yeah. I mean, I, I've studied the Middle East for, for a number of years and uh, it's always fascinated me. I mean, the, f- the first time I went there was back in 2003 during the middle of the... The Iraq invasion, um, and went to Baghdad and, and saw the sort of you know the the, the the legacy of that conflict and how it's um, emerged for for a long time. So I thought, why not go back and hopefully see it through a different lens? Go there on a on a journey, on an adventure, um, and without sugarcoating, you know what's going on, but also try and get some of the human stories, the good yeah. news, positive stories, which you don't really very much see on the news these days, do you? I mean, in, I remember going back to 2003, America was still calling that area the Persian Gulf, and I hadn't heard it called the Persian Gulf or Persia for a long time. Is there thing still, is there still such a thing as Arabia? Well, the concept of Arabia, it, you know, it, for some it might seem outdated. I mean, the Arabian Peninsula is, is a geographical feature. Yeah. Arabia itself does feature in the, the imaginations of people because actually if you speak to a Bedouin tribesman in somewhere like Jordan or Palestine or even Yemen, you know, they, they don't really see these nation states, which are all quite modern concepts, as, as being particularly real because their allegiance is often to their tribe and their family first and foremost. So the countries, you know, some of which like Yemen are completely fragmented anyway, um, aren't as important as the concept of being an Arab, being a Bedou. Um, and so that's what I wanted to explore is, is the idea of what is Arabia? And that's the question that's at the f- sort of forefront of this book. Yeah, one of the quotes is, what on earth does um, having a Bedouin name mean in this modern era and they still call it they, they still talk about tribes even now absolutely and uh, and that's what i found is that you know the arabic language and, and obviously the religion means that um, on the one hand there's enormous unity of, of this people you know the arab people in in the arabian peninsula but at the same time because of the tribal affiliations and some of the religious sectarianism that plagues the region it means that it's also very divided so it was just trying to get my head into it's a really complicated place especially in places like syria you know where it's not as simple as we see on the news you know there's two thousand different armed groups in syria it's not just a case of you know islamic state versus the government you know there's a lot more to it than that but that yes because you're in a sleepy little town is it malikia i think in uh, malikia 
in um, in Syria, uh, and you say it's a sleepy little town, but it is Syria, and it's nudging Turkey, and it's not a million miles away from Raqqa. And the first thing they notice about you is is your iPhone seven. <laughs> so that, that's a bit twenty first century to start with, and you soon have a loaded SIM card, a Syrian SIM card, um, lots of credit, and it all seems very very normal. It's like going into any market. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, the, the, when you sort of put your SIM in from Syria, the first message, you get a, a complimentary message from the Ministry um, of Tourism in Syria welcoming you and saying, have a pleasant stay, which I thought was very surreal. Or else. But but I thought, yeah, or else, yeah. But I found that everywhere. It was a case of, you know, in Syria, I was in Damascus as well, and, you know, you could literally hear the mortars landing three miles away, and yet there were people sitting down having a, a glass of wine in, you know, in, in a wine bar, there's coffee mm. shops, there's a thriving hipster scene in Damascus. You don't hear about all those things. It is um, all, all so normal. Yeah. And the border guard let you in. I mean, this will put me off to start with, because um, he let you in with no visa. I mean, was this just you not getting a visa, or was just thinking, I'll try, I'll try and blag it? <laughs> well, no, in the northeast of Syria, it's not run by the government, you see, so there is no... It's a bit lawless, so you have to just okay. go and speak to somebody and they, they let you across. But he let you in with the promise that you wouldn't hang around and go straight to Iraq. Yes. I mean, <laughs> and he believed you. <laughs> uh, going back to Baghdad in 2003, um, you met a guy, an ITV journalist, Martin Gisler, mm-hmm. and he said, uh, you idiots who let you in. Um, and he's, a, he's in a, well, he's in a hotel. This is the thing that gets me, because there's Black Hawks helicopters at night yep. bombing the place, and then there's you on a tenth floor bedroom suite uh, sipping cocktails by the pool during the day. So there are these little oases of, of normality in the middle of a war zone, and you find that everywhere. You know, on the, that that was one of my earliest sort of travel experiences. I was twenty one at the time, um, but going back to you know, I was in Yemen recently and again this was a place that is mired in conflict and there we were in the middle of probably the biggest tragedy of, of the 21st mm. century and yet you know uh, there I was in the middle of the marketplace and an ice cream van turns up with the with the music playing and then all of the, the kids <laughs> run out for their ice cream so it's just these pockets of like you say peace and calm and serenity that just happen people get on with their normal lives now this was this before you joined the army 21 the- Yes, yeah, yeah, that was before. So then you went to Afghanistan. Correct. Yep. And famously, some of the British troops in Afghanistan would play Michael Jackson songs <laughs> to see where the kids were. And if the kids were there, the chances are, some of the guys told me, that there would be snipers around. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah, it, it's, uh, it, it, was a, it was a kind of interesting time to be there and, and we yeah I mean there's 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 different ways of, of finding out who the good guys are and the bad guys are but it's it's not always that simple yeah so I'm, I'm, I'm really asking is the view when you're wearing a uniform and you're armed different to the view when you haven't got a visa and you've just blagged a sim card yeah absolutely I mean you know having been to Afghanistan in 2008 um, you yeah it's a very different reception which is why on these journeys even though I'm going to war zones and, and so on um, I never go armed because you don't want to present yourself as a threat. And, and as a result, I've been looked after by all sorts of different people, probably people who you wouldn't think would want to look after you. I mean, on the recent journey, we had lunch with Hezbollah. We met people that were you know, probably on the wrong side of the, the, the sort of uh, equation in, in Syria and Iraq. You know, I was embedded with the Shia militia in Iraq, and these were the same guys that were you know, shooting at British troops not yeah. so long ago. And it's, it's a difficult one to... Um, sort of, I guess, get your head around, you know, particularly as a former British soldier myself, um, you know, do I really want to associate with these people? Well, I think it's important to try and understand. I think that's the only way to hopefully build bridges, but get your head into their, the, the mind of people that potentially are not your friend. And the 
the traditional conflicts that you've seen amongst themselves, um, when they translate to Europe and the rest of the world, uh, 2017, what they call the Year of Terror, mm. and that, that's here, that's Manchester, that's London. And you met a guy called, is it Amar? And he took you to the Al Nuri Mosque. Um, in Mosul. In Mosul, yeah. Um, and he blamed the people from the UK, the jihadi Johns and that, for yep. all the terror that we saw on YouTube over here. And he said, that's nothing to do with us. You want to keep your guys where you are because they're nuts. We've got some history here. He said, yeah, I mean, his view as an Iraqi was that actually the the leadership of IS was was foreign. You know, whether that's British, whether that's Chechen, you know, it was foreigners going into... Syria and Iraq and, and causing trouble and and he was astonished that we kind of let you know let them get away with it and, and uh, it was very much an Iraqi viewpoint but um, you can kind of see when you got foreigners coming into your country and and causing that trouble then uh, from an Iraqi standpoint then you don't want that. I mean, one could become seriously depressed and lose all hope and well scared witless, mm. frankly, if you look at the way it's developing. Isn't this just the way that this will always be? Will, will we just lurch from one event to the next and that particular part of the world will carry on doing what it's always done? Well, I came away actually with, with some hope um, because of the forgiveness that actually I, I encountered from people. Um, I mean, in Syria I met a guy whose father had been murdered by, you know, ISIS, um, he was the director of the museum at Palmyra, which is the famous, you know, um, archaeological site. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, his father had been killed because he tried to defend the site. ISIS were asking him where the gold was. He said, there is no gold. It's, they're just old stones. But, of course, they were... They, they, they thought there was genuinely gold hidden there. And, as a result, he was murdered. But his son, you know, who had to sort of see that and witness it... Um, Actually, he said, "You know what? It's it's kind of done with. We, you know, I'll forgive the people that did that." And when you hear that, it's kind of it's mind blowing to sort of think that that somebody can can have forgiveness after that's happened, and yet that really is the only thing that he's got to do. There is more humanity in this book than I've seen in in in, in quite a few. I mean, and, and there's the the generation gap that we associate with as well, because there's the young Arabians who are asking how the West sees them, and they're 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 worried about or they're concerned and certainly interested about how they are viewed by us. And also, there's the old guy who built the house in the 50s in the village, and everybody's going to the towns, and life is not what it once was. Yeah. Well, you know, ditto. But there still seems to be the generational thing that the old days were the good ones. I think that's anywhere, though, isn't it? You speak to a lot of uh, people... Well, we had rationing and rickets, and it, yeah, it was horrible. Um, and, you know, I think the, the concept back in my day is, is, is a theme that you find anywhere. But I think the one thing that I've seen over the last 15 years of travelling in places like the Middle East is how technology has brought, brought about change. And wherever you go, even in you know, the sort of mountains of Yemen and Saudi Arabia, you'll meet these tribesmen who um, are wearing traditional dress... They've got a big dagger in their belt and an ammunition strap and a, and a gun and a spear and, and, and also an iPhone, you know, shoved down yeah. their belt. And, and that really means that wherever you go, people are on Facebook, they're on Instagram, they're more connected than they ever were. And I think that's a hopeful thing because it means that with, there's dialogue. They've got friends overseas. They get the news, which means that they're not being subdued in a way that they were before. So they get the news and therefore they get the information and they get the propaganda and they get any message. Well, that's true. But I think that, you know, they people aren't as daft as <laughs> sometimes they're made out to be. So hopefully, um, I think it's, it's a positive thing in general and I think that people will be able to make their own minds up. Were there times on this trip where you thought, 
oh, I might not make this. Um, there were there were moments, particularly in Yemen and in Iraq, where I thought, is this really a good idea? But you know, there was, there's there's always going to be risks associated with an expedition like this. Um, is it worth it? I think so. I think going in somewhere like Yemen and, and covering the stories there. Um, you know, very few journalists have been there in recent years, so I think it's important to get these stories out. And it would be nice to bring T.E. Lawrence back and do that journey with him again. And say, oh, look, <laughs> see what it's like now. Uh, Levison Wood, where are you going next? Um, well, I'm sort of concentrating on staying around a bit more. I've got a theatre tour um, coming up around the UK, so I'm going to be speaking about these experiences um, over the next month. Um, and then I'll think about what's, what's in 2019 later on. Isn't that all comparatively dull to getting shot at <laughs> and blagging your way around the Middle East? Well, I guess, it, you know, it's, it's definitely a, a contrast, but um, I quite enjoy, you know, you, you know what, standing in front of 2,000 people on stage and the kids are the worst, they've got some pretty intense questioning. <laughs> yeah, but you're going to get out alive, hopefully. <laughs> Arabia, a journey through the heart of the Middle East by Levison Wood. It's, um, yeah, you'll want to go afterwards. Good to meet you, Levison. Thank you. That was Levison Wood. His book, Arabia, is out now. Thank you for downloading the podcast. Uh, if you would be so kind, please rate it and comment and tell us what you think. Thank you. Thank you.